Section 10 of Police This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chambers The Ladies of the Lake, Part 2 This, then, is how it came about that Kitten Brown and I were seated one midgeful morning in July, by the pellucid waters of Lake Susan W. Pillsbury, gnawing sections from a greasily fried trout upon which I had attempted culinary operations. Brown's baptismal name was William, but the unfortunate young man was once discovered, indiscreetly, embracing a pretty assistant in the administration building at Bronx, and, furthermore, was heard to address her as Kitten. So, Kitten Brown it was, for him in the future. After he had fought all the younger members of the scientific staff in turn, he gradually became resigned to this annoying nom d'amour. Lightly, but thoroughly, equipped for scientific field research, we had arrived at the rendezvous in time to bribe the two guides engaged by the government to go back to their own firesides. A week later, the formidable expedition of representative ladies arrived, and now they were sitting on the shore of Lake Susan W. Pillsbury, at a little distance from us, trying to keep the midges from their features, and attempting to eat the fare provided for them by me. I myself couldn't eat it. No wonder they murmured. But hunger goaded them to attack the greasy mess of trout and fried cornmeal. Kitten was saying to me, "'Our medicine chest isn't very extensive. I hope they brought their own. If they didn't, some among us will never again see New York. I stole a furtive glance at the unfortunate women. There was one among them, but let me first enumerate their heavy artillery. There was the Reverend Dr. Amelia Jones, blonde, at a poise, and close to the four-score mark. She stepped high in the equal franchise ranks. Nobody had ever had the temerity to answer her back. There was Miss Sadie Dingleheimer, fifty, emaciated, anemic, and gauntly glittering with thick-lensed eyeglasses. She was the president of the National Prophylactic Club, whatever that may be. There was Miss Margaret McFadden, a Titian, profusely toothed, muscular, and president of the Hairdressers' Union of the United States. There was Mrs. Gladys Doolittle Bat, a grass one, Bat being represented as a vanishing point, president of the National Eugenic and Purity League tall, gnarled, sinuously powerful, and prone to emotional attacks. The attacks were directed towards others. These, then, composed the heavy artillery. The artillery of the Light Brigade consisted only of a single piece. Her name was Angelica White, a delegate from the Trained Nurses Association of America. The nurses had been too busy with their business to attend such picnics, so one had been selected by lot to represent the busy association on this expedition. Angelica White was a tall, fair, yellow-haired girl of twenty-two or three, with violet-blue eyes and red lips, and a way of smiling a little when spoken to. But let that pass. I mean only to be scientifically minute. A passion for fact has ever obsessed me. I have little literary ability, and less desire to sully my pen with that degraded form of letters known as fiction. Once in my life my mania for accuracy involved me lyrically, it was a short poem, but an earnest one. 
truth is mighty and must prevail otherwise it were inadvisable to tell the tale i bestowed it upon the new york evening post but declined remuneration my message belonged to the world i don't mean the newspaper her eyes then were tinted with that indefinable and agreeable nuance which modifies blue to a lilac or violet hue watching her askance i was deeply sorry that my cooking seemed to pain her guide said mrs doolittle bat in that remarkable booming voice of hers madam said kitten brown and i with spontaneous alacrity leaping from the ground as though shot at this cooking she said with an ominous stare at us is atrocious don't you know how to cook i said with a smiling attempt at ease there are various ways of cooking food for the several species of mammalia which an all-wise providence do you think you're cooking for wild cats she demanded our smiles faded it's my opinion that you're incompetent remarked the reverend dr jones slapping at minges with a hand that might have rocked all the cradles of the nation but had not rocked any we are not getting our money's worth said miss dingleheimer even if the government does pay your salaries i looked appealingly from one stony face to another in miss mcfadden's eye there was a sombre glint of battle she said if you can guide us no better than you cook god save us all this day week and she hurled the contents of her tin plate into lake susan w pillsbury mrs doolittle bat arose come she said it is time we started what is the name of the first lake we may hope to encounter we knew no more than they did but we said that lake gladys doolittle bat was the first hoping to placate that fearsome woman come on then she cried picking up her carved and varnished mountain staff miss dingleheimer had brought one too from the catskills so kitten brown and i loaded our mule set him in motion and drove him forward into the unknown where we were going we had not the slightest idea the margin of the lake was easy travelling so easy that we never noticed that we had already gone around the lake three times until mrs bat recognized the fact and turned on us furiously i don't know how to explain it except to say feebly that i was doing it as a sort of preliminary canter to harden and inure the ladies we don't need hardening she snarled do you understand that i comprehended that at once but i forced a sickly smile and skipped forward in the wake of my mule with something of the same abandon which characterizes the flight of an unwelcome dog in the terrified ear of kitten i voiced my doubts concerning the prospects of a pleasant journey we marched in the following order arthur the heavily laden mule led then came kitten brown and myself all hung over with stew pans shotguns rifles cartridge belts ponchos and the toilette reticules of the ladies then marched the rev w jones and in order finally behind her miss dingleheimer mrs bat miss mcfadden and miss white the latter in her trained nurse's costume and wearing a red cross on her sleeve an idea of mrs bat who believed in emergency methods mrs bat also bore a banner much interfered with by the foliage bearing the inscription equal rights eugenics or extermination after a while she shouted guide here you may carry this banner for a while i'm tired kitten and i took turns with it after that 
It was hard work, particularly as one by one in turn they came up and hung their parasols and shopping reticules all over us. We plodded forward like a pair of moving department stores, not daring to shift our burdens to Arthur, because we had already stuffed into the panniers of that simple and dignified animal all our collecting boxes, cyanide jars, butterfly nets, notebooks, reels of piano wire, thermometers, barometers, hydrometers, durometers, aeronometers, anodes, everything, in fact, that the guides are not supposed to pack into the woods, but which we had smuggled unbeknown to those misguided ones we guided. And, to make room for our scientific paraphernalia, we have been obliged to do a thing so mean, so inexpressibly low, that I blush to relate it. But facts are facts. We discarded nearly a ton of feminine impedimentia. There was fancy work of all sorts in the making or in the raw. Materials for knitting, embroidering, tatting, sewing, hemming, stitching, drawn work, lace-making, and crocheting. Also we disposed of almost half a ton of toilet necessities. Powder, perfumery, cosmetics, hot water bags, slippers, negligees, novels, magazines, bonbons, chewing gum, hat boxes, gloves, stockings, and underwear. We left enough apparel for each lady to change once. They'd have to do some scrubbing now. Science cannot be halted by hat pins. Cosmos cannot be sidetracked by cosmetics. Towards sunset, we came upon a small, crystal-clear pond, set between the bases of several lofty mountains. I was ready to drop with fatigue, but I nerved myself, drew a deep, exultant breath, and with one of those fine, sweeping gestures, I cried, Lake Mrs. Gladys Doolittle Bat, Eureka, at last, Excelsior! There was a profound silence behind me. I turned, striving to mask my apprehension with a smile. The ladies were regarding the pond in surprise. I admit it was a pond, not a lake. Injecting into my voice the last remnants of glee which I could summon, I shouted, Eureka! and began to caper about as though the size and beauty of the pond had affected me with irrepressible enthusiasm, hoping by my emotion to stampede the convention. The cold voice of Mrs. Doolittle Bat checked my transports. "'Is that puddle named after me?' she demanded. "'Ma-ma-ma-ma'am,' I stammered. "'If that wretched frog pond has been christened with my name, somebody is going to get into trouble,' she said ominously. A profound silence ensued. Arthur patiently switched at flies. As for me, I looked up at the majestic pines, gazed upon the lofty and eternal hills, then ventured a sneaking glance all around me. But I could discover no avenue of escape in case Mrs. Bat should charge me. "'I have been informed,' she began dangerously, "'that the majestic body of water, which I understood had been honored with my name, was twelve miles long and three miles wide.' This appears to be a puddle. But it's, it's very pretty, I protested feebly. It's quite round and clear, and it's nearly a quarter of a mile in diameter. Mind your business, retorted Mrs. Doolittle Bat. I've been swindled. Kitten Brown knew more about women than I did. He said in a fairly steady voice, Madam, it is an outrage. The women of this mighty nation should make the government answerable for its duplicity. Your lake should have been at least twenty miles long. Everybody turned and looked at Kitten. He was a handsome dog. This young man appears to have some trace of common sense, said Mrs. Bat. 
I shall see to it that the government is held responsible for this odious act of insulting duplicity. I, I won't have my name given to this, this wallow. She advanced towards me, her small eyes blazing. I retreated to leeward of Arthur. Guide, she said, in a voice still trembling with passion, are you certain that you have made no mistake? You appear to be unusually ignorant. I am afraid there can be no room for doubt, I said, almost scared out of my senses. And on top of this outrage, am I to eat your cooking? She demanded passionately. Did I come here to look at this frog pond and choke on your cooking? Did I? I can cook, said a clear, pleasant voice at my elbow. And Mrs. White came forward, cool, clean, fresh as a posy in her uniform and cap. I immediately got behind her. I can cook very nicely, she said smilingly. It is part of my profession, you know. So if you two guys will be kind enough to build the fire and help me. She let her violet eyes linger on me for an instant, then on Brown. A moment later, he and I were jostling each other in our eagerness to obey her slightest suggestion. It is that way with men. So we built her a fire and unpacked our provisions, and we waited very politely on the ladies when dinner was ready. It was a fine dinner. Coffee, bacon, flapjacks, soup, ash bread, stewed chicken. The heavy artillery, made ravenous by their journey, required vast quantities of ammunition. They banqueted largely. I gazed in amazement at Mrs. Doolittle Bat as she swallowed one flapjack after another, while her eyes bulged larger and larger. Nor was the capacity of Miss Dingleheimer and the Reverend Dr. Jones to be mocked at by pachyderms. Brown and I left them eating while we erected a row of little tents. Every lady had demanded a separate tent. So we cut saplings, set up the silk, drove pegs, and brought armfuls of balsam boughs. I was afraid they'd demand their knitting and other utensils, but they had eaten to repletion and were sleeping, and as each toilet case or reticule contained also a nightgown, they do the flaps of their several tents without insisting that we unpack Arthur's panniers. They all had disappeared within their tents except Miss White, who insisted on cooking something for us, although we protested that the scraps of the banquet were all right for mere guides. She stood behind us for a few minutes, watching us busy with our delicious dinner. "'You poor fellows,' she said gently, "'you are nearly starved.' It is agreeable to be sympathized with by a tall, fair, fresh young girl. We looked up, simpering gratefully. This is really a most lovely little lake, she said, gazing out across the still, crystalline water which was all rose and gold in the sunset, save where the somber shapes of the towering mountains were mirrored in the glassy depths. It is odd, I said, that no trout are jumping. There ought to be lots of them here, and this is their jumping hour. We all looked at the quiet, oval bit of water. Not a circle, not the slightest ripple disturbed it. It must be deep, remarked Brown. We gazed up at the three lofty peaks, the bases of which were the shores of this tiny gem among lakes. Deep, deep, plunging down into dusky profundity, the rocks fell away sheer into limpid depths. That little lake may be a thousand feet deep, I said. In 1903, Professor Farrago of Bronx Park, measured a lake in the Thunder Mountains, which was 2,769 feet deep. Miss White looked at me curiously. Into a patch of late sunshine flitted a small butterfly, one of the graptus species. 
it settled on a chip of wood, uncoiled its delicate proboscis, and spread its fulvous and deeply indented wings. Grapta California, remarked Brown to me. Vanessa Astrica, I corrected him. Note the anal angle of the secondaries, and the argentiferous discal area bordering the subcaudal nerval. The characteristic stripes on the primaries are wanting, he demurred. It is double-brooded. The summer form lacks the three darker bands. A few moments' silence was broken by the voice of Miss White. I had no idea, she remarked, that Alaskan guides were so familiar with entomological terms and nomenclature. We both turned very red. Brown mumbled something about having picked up a smattering. I added that Brown had taught me. Perhaps she believed us. Her blue eyes rested on us curiously, musingly. Also, at moments, I fancied there was the faintest glint of amusement in them. She said, Two scientific gentlemen from New York requested permission to join this expedition, but Mrs. Bat refused them. She gazed thoughtfully upon the waters of Lake Gladys Doolittle Bat. I wonder, she murmured, what became of those two gentlemen? It was evident that we had betrayed ourselves to this young girl. She glanced at us again, and perhaps she noticed in our fascinated gaze an expression akin to terror, for suddenly she laughed. Such a clear, sweet, silvery little laugh. For my part, she said, I wish they had come with us. I like men. With that, she bade us good night very politely, and went off to her tent, leaving us with our hats pressed against our stomachs, attempting by the profundity of our bows to indicate the depth of our gratitude. "'There's a girl!' exclaimed Brown, as soon as she had disappeared behind her tent flaps. "'She'll never let on to Medusa, Zantippi, Cassandra, and company. I like that girl, Smith.' "'You're not the only one imbued with such sentiments,' said I. He smiled a fatuous and reminiscent smile. He certainly was good-looking. Presently, he said, She has the most delightful way of gazing at a man. I've noticed, I said pleasantly. Oh, did she happen to glance at you that way? He inquired. I wanted to beat him. All I said was, She's certainly some kitten, which bottled that young man for a while. We lay on the bank of the tiny lake, our backs against a huge pine tree, watching the last traces of color fading from peak and treetop. Isn't it queer, I said, that not a trout has splashed? It can't be that there are no fish in the lake. There are such lakes. Yes, very deep ones. I wonder how deep this is. We'll be out at sunrise with our reel of piano wire and take soundings, he said. The heavy artillery won't wake until they're ready to be loaded with flapjacks. I shuddered. They're fearsome creatures, Brown. Somehow that resolute and bony one has inspired me with a terror unutterable. Mrs. Bat? Yes, he said seriously. She'll make a horrid outcry when she asks for her knitting. What are you going to tell her? I shall say that Indians ambuscaded us while she was asleep and carried off all those things. You lie very nicely, don't you? He remarked admiringly. In vitum dulcet cope fuga, said I. Besides, they don't need those articles. He laughed. He didn't seem very much afraid of Mrs. Bat. It had grown deliciously dusky, 
and myriads of stars were coming out. Little by little the lake lost its shape in the darkness, until only an irregular, star-set area of quiet water indicated that there was any lake there at all. I remember that Brown and I, reclining at the foot of the tree, were looking at the still and starry surface of the lake, over which numbers of bats were darting after insects. And I recall that I was just about to speak when, of a sudden, the silent and luminescent surface of the water was shattered, as with a subterranean explosion. A geyser of scintillating spray shot upward, flashing, foaming, towering a hundred feet into the air, and through it I seemed to catch a glimpse of a vast, quivering, twisting mass of silver falling back with a crash into the lake, while the huge fountain rained spray on every side, and the little lake rocked and heaved from shore to shore, sending great sheets of surf up over the rocks so high that the very treetops dripped. Petrified, dumb, our senses almost paralyzed by the shock, our ears still deafened by the watery crash of that gigantic something that had fallen into the lake, and our eyes starting from their sockets, we stared at the darkness. Slap, slap, slush went the waves, hitting the shore with a clashing sound almost metallic. Vision and hearing told us that the water in the lake was rocking like the contents of a bathtub. "'Good Lord!' whispered Brown. "'Is there a volcano under that lake? "'Did you see that huge, glittering shape that seemed to fall into the water?' I gasped. "'Yes. What was it? A meteor?' "'No. It was something that first came out of the lake and fell back. "'The way a trout leaps. "'Heavens, it couldn't have been alive, could it?' "'What do you mean?' stammered Brown. "'It could, could, couldn't have been a f f fish, could it?' I asked with chattering teeth. "'No, no! It was as big as a Pullman car! It must have been a falling star. Did you ever hear of a fish as big as a sleeping car?' I was too thoroughly unnerved to reply. The roaring of the surf had subsided somewhat, enough for another sound to reach our ears. A raucous, Galanaceous, squawking sound. I sprang up and looked at the row of tents. White-robed figures loomed in front of them. The heavy artillery was evidently frightened. We went over to them, and when we got nearer, they chastely scuttled into their tents and thrust out a row of heads, heads hideous with curl papers. Oh, what was that awful sound? An earthquake? shrilled the Reverend Dr. Jones. I think I'll go home. What, was it an avalanche? demanded Mrs. Bat, in a deep and shaky voice. "'Are we in any immediate danger, young man?' I said that it was probably a flying star which had happened to strike the lake and explode. "'What an awful region!' wailed Miss Dingleheimer. "'I've had my money's worth. I wish to go back to New York at once. I'll begin to dress immediately. "'It might be a million years before another meteor falls in this latitude,' I said soothingly. "'Or it might be ten minutes.' sobbed Miss Dingleheimer. What do you know about it, anyway? I want to go home. I'm putting on my stockings now. I'm getting dressed as fast as I can. Her voice was blotted out in a mighty crash from the lake. Appalled, I whirled on my heel, just in time to see another huge jet of water rise high in the starlight. Another. Another, until the entire lake was but a cluster of gigantic geysers exploding a hundred feet in the air, while through them, falling back into the smother of furious foam, great silvery bulks dropped crashing, one after another. 
I don't know how long the incredible vision lasted. The woods roared with the infernal pandemonium, echoed and re-echoed from mountain to mountain. The treetops fairly storm spray, driving it in sheets through the leaves, and the shores of the lake spouted surf long after the last vast silvery shape had fallen back again into the water. As my senses gradually recovered, I found myself supporting Mrs. Bat on one arm and the Reverend Dr. Jones upon my bosom. Both had fainted. I released them with a shudder and turned to look for Brown. Someone had swooned in his arms, too. He was not noticing me, and as I approached him I heard him say something resembling the word kitten. In spite of my demoralization, another fear seized me, and I drew nearer and peered closely at what he was holding so nobly in his arms. It was, as I supposed, Angelica White. I don't know whether my arrival occultly revived her, for as I stumbled over a tent-peg she opened her blue eyes, and then disengaged herself from Brown's arms. Oh, I am so frightened, she murmured. She looked at me sideways when she said it. Come, I said coldly to Brown, let Miss White retire and lie down. This meteoric shower is over, and so is the danger. He evinced a desire to further smooth the minister to Miss White, but she said, with considerable composure, that she was feeling better, and Brown came, unwillingly, with me to inspect the heavy artillery lines. That formidable battery was wrecked, the pieces dismounted and lying tumbled about in their emplacements. But a vigorous course of cold water in dippers revived them, and we herded them into one tent and quieted them with some soothing prevarication, the details of which I have forgotten but it was something about a flock of meteors which hit the earth every twelve billion years, and that it was all over now for another such interim, and everybody could sleep soundly with the consciousness of having assisted at a spectacle, never before beheld except by a primordial protoplasmic cell, which flattered them, I think, for, seated once more at the base of our tree, presently we heard weird noises from the reconcentrados, like the moaning of a harbor bar. They slept. The heavy guns, still unawakened engines of destruction all a row in battery. But Brown and I, fearfully excited, still dazed and bewildered, sat with our fascinated eyes fixed on the lake, asking each other what in the name of miracles it was that we had witnessed and heard. On one thing we were agreed. A scientific discovery of the most enormous importance awaited our investigation. This was no time for temporizing, for deception, for any species of polite shilly-shallying, we must, on the morrow, tear off our masks and appear before these misguided and feminine victims of our duplicity in our own characters as scientists. We must boldly avow our identities and flatly refuse to stir from this spot until the mystery of this astounding lake had been thoroughly investigated. And so, discussing our policy, our plans for the morrow, and mutually reassuring each other concerning our common ability to successfully defy the heavy artillery, we finally fell asleep. End of section 10. Recording by Todd.